Thanks. Thanks. Great to see you guys. If you're new, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're Sunridge, a guest, or uh, you're just checking us out online, we're just so glad uh, to be a part of your spiritual journey. We hope what happens today uh, around this campus, not just in this room, for your families as well, that uh, we help you take the next step uh, toward God, wherever you're starting from. Um, I just want to put an exclamation point on two things that Becky has already mentioned. One, we have our 29th uh, anniversary, or our 30th anniversary. I keep mixing that up. Our 30th anniversary coming up, and uh, man, that is just such a great story. I can't wait for it. Uh, please don't miss that. We're going to celebrate what God has done in this church, and it's going to be really powerful. And then uh, if you're kind of like back on your heels about whether to sign up for When Helping Hurts, I want to let you know that after our anniversary Sunday, we're going to start talking about the direction of Sunridge. We're going to be doing a series called Made Whole, which is about how God is making us whole and what that means for our day and our time. And um, when helping hurts is meant to accompany that, because we're going to be talking about how we can take the gospel to our world in our own individual ways and the way that God has designed us. But there's a lot of, of information that's out right now, a lot of data, a lot of research going into the many of the ways that we have been trying to help the world is not helping. So it's going to be provoking it's, and it's going to be inspiring for you to be a part of that. And every once in a while, we ask the church to all come together and to study together on one theme. And so I hope that you'll be a part of that. It's going to be super cool. Now, um, with the view of our anniversary Sunday, our 30th anniversary coming up, uh, we are in this series we're calling A History of Us. Because what we're trying to do is say, okay, where did we start? Did we start in 1989? No. Our history gives us identity. It gives us direction. It gives us the trajectory that uh, we're supposed to be on. We find our bearings from our history. And we started this conversation by looking through a lens. The lens that we're looking through is, first of all, we talked about a promise. That God gave a promise to Abraham for the people of God. And this is in Genesis 12, 2. And he said, I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And I will make you a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So we're taking our history all the way back to a time when God established a people that were after his name. And when he did that, he said, I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be a blessing to others because of that blessing. And then last week we talked a little bit. We, we see how this, this blessing to Abraham was just a tipping of the cards a little bit to what God was going to do in the future. This is a, an early glimpse of the gospel. Because Paul wrote in Galatians that, that those who believe in Christ are the true children of Abraham. And that the blessings that were given to Abraham are also given to the church. So today, if you're a Christian, you share in this promise. Now, last week we talked about how not only do we have a promise, but we talked about how the promise was fulfilled through a person, Jesus Christ. And in John 5, 39, we saw that Jesus said in early in his ministry, you search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. 
He said, I am the fulfillment of that promise. And so we see how God works through the ages to reveal more and more of his plan. And I don't think the children of, Israel, uh, of Abraham knew the gospel as we know it today, but it was just an early tip. And Jesus opened up that light a little more when he said, I'm the fulfillment of that promise. And when he said that, the followers of his day wholeheartedly believed him. They were all in. And then he was executed. Jesus was crucified. And as far as they knew, it was over. The end of the promise. So some thought. But on that day, what seemed as the darkest hour, a violent hope broke through and shook the ground. And as you rose, the light of all the world was magnified, and you rose in victory. Hallelujah, it is finished. Hallelujah, it is done. Hallelujah, King forever. We thank you for the cross. That, those are the lyrics to a song we're going to sing at the close of this service. You see, they thought the promise was dead, but the resurrection was a game changer. This is the first uh, line in your note sheet if you're following along with that. The resurrection sparked a movement called the church. We've looked at our history through the lens of a promise, through a person, and today I want to talk about a movement because his death did not end the promise. It only proved it through the resurrection. And this is what Paul said in Romans 1.4, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was shown to be the Son of God when God powerfully raised him from the dead. If you're a Christian today, you have a certainty in the promise that God gave his children, confirmed through the resurrection. You have something that they didn't have. Stop and think about that. You have something to stand on. Now, I know that not everybody in this room believes in the resurrection. I know that for some of you, it's like, okay, Britt, you know, I, I'm, I think church is nice. It's for good people and for bad people that want to get better. Um, it's, you know, for the most part, the church has done nice things. But, you know, do you really believe in the resurrection? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And if you're considering the gospel today, I want you to consider a few things before we get into like the, the body of what I want to talk about today. Because so much of it is based on the resurrection. This is what sparked the movement. I want to address those of you who would say, you know, I'm not sure that I believe in that. And I want to pose this question. If, you, if the resurrection didn't happen, then how do you explain, first of all, in your notes, the Bible? We often say, well, uh, because the Bible tells me so. And often that is the case. But as I said before, the resurrection didn't happen because the Bible says it happened. We have the Bible because the resurrection did happen. We say, well, I, you know, because the Bible tells me so. The, the fact of the resurrection isn't built on the Bible. The Bible came from those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, the Bible is completely reliable. I'm not trying to shake your, uh, your confidence in the Bible. Quite the opposite. 
of, of any historical document we have, the, the Bible is unparalleled. You know, some of the biggest events in, in history we have no eyewitness account for. But in, in the resurrection, we have four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Then you have to ask yourself, like, well, if the resurrection didn't really happen, why did they bother to write it down? I mean, most of the world at this time is illiterate. Parchment and writing materials are extraordinarily expensive and rare. Why, why would a group of people stop and write down something? And then, after they did, why did they meticulously protect it and, and copy it when they did so at great peril to their own lives. Diocletian, the third century uh, Roman emperor, uh, imposed one of the worst persecutions on the Christian community in history. And he had all Christian literature burned. And if any individual or family was caught with Christian literature or a copy of the Bible or a, a scrap of the Bible, they would be executed, them and their family. What caused people to risk so much to give us what we now call the Bible. We have the Bible today because early Christians witnessed the resurrection. They were, they were certain about these things. And whatever fear they had was overcome by what they knew to be true. If you struggle with whether the resurrection happened, how do you explain the disciples? Who they go from being completely AWOL to being on fire sharing the gospel around the world. They go from cowards to bold witnesses. Mark says in Mark 16, 20, they went out and preached everywhere. How do you explain that dramatic and instantaneous change? And speaking of change, how do you explain the Apostle Paul? That if you know uh, the early history of the church, Paul or Saul at that time is a persecutor of the church. How does he go from being a persecutor of the church to the defender of the faith. He says, his testimony is in Acts chapter 9, that it was because he encountered the resurrected Christ. Fourthly, how do you explain Pentecost? Acts tells us that those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church about 3,000 in all. On this day at Pentecost, when the gospel is preached by Peter at the launch of what we know is the early church, 3,000 people respond. Now, this is, this is barely two months after the death of Jesus. So given that many of these people would be familiar with these things, where's the disputation? Where's the documentation? Why is the body not presented by the Roman Empire when uh, this, is, this is going to be a revolution and upset their society and their culture? How do you explain Pentecost? And fifth, how do you explain the explosive growth of the church in Acts 2.47, it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It just This movement had its own momentum. And so first century Christianity, not just the Bible, but historians will tell you, it was an explosion ignited by the resurrection. And the church extended in all directions. It became a movement. And that movement, its early days are recorded in the fifth book of your New Testament called Acts. You, your Bible might say the Acts of the Apostles, but Acts provides a history of the early church. 
Now, I want to tell you that I'm going to kind of geek out today. And I feel like as a pastor, I get a couple of geek out Sundays a year. So, uh, but if you, we're going to even, we're going to look at Acts, even though I'm geeking out at a 10,000 foot level, if you really want to geek out on the early church, you need to get this book, Church History in Plain Language by Dr. Bruce Shelby, Shelley. Church History in Plain Language. And I'll give you all the detail that you want. But after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the next book is Acts, and it records the history of the early church and how this movement moved forward. First of all, you see that Peter preaches the gospel, as we mentioned, and 3,000 people respond. This is in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, which is a, it's become a Christian word, but that used to be, that's the Greek word for a Jewish celebration known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And so you have this strategic time when people from the children of Abraham the Israelites are gathering together in Jerusalem for their time of celebration. And Peter preaches the gospel. And Christian faith takes off. Again, founded upon the resurrection. And what happens out of those 3,000 people, pockets of Christians start to form all over the city. And they start to get organized or try to get organized. And when they do... There's localized resistance, even persecution in the, in the first chapters of Acts. And by the way, the complaining by Christians starts by Acts 6. That's a little footnote. It doesn't take long for them to become the kind of Christians that I am, not you. And it's during that time that persecution intensifies. And a young believer named Stephen is martyred. And there's a man at his uh, martyrdom when he's stoned to death named Saul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. But shortly thereafter, by Acts 9, that man, Paul, is converted. And in Acts 9, he says, you see that he's converted because he encountered the resurrected Christ. Secondly, we see, as we continue looking at the movement, that the persecution scatters Christians from Jerusalem all the way to Antioch. In Acts eleven nineteen, Luke records, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now I'm going to put a map up on the screen so that you can see what happened here. The church starts in Jerusalem. And persecution scatters them. To the north, they scatter as far as Antioch. That's 300 miles. Now just think about the, the refugees of our day. Leave the map up just for a second. Think about the refugee situations that we have. And you have nations that are established who have programs and systems, and we have the United Nations to, like, to absorb these refugees. Can you imagine how awful the persecution was at this time that people would leave their families and their hometown because they were in fear for their lives, that they would travel this far? 
They go as far as Antioch. Some land in Cyprus, that island. In Cyrene, which isn't on your map, is down to the left, south, in northern Africa. They scatter everywhere. They're just spreading out. And as they do so, they're sharing the gospel. And you notice that they, it says that they, they shared it with the Jews first because that's kind of the history of Christianity. Our roots are Jewish. But then some of these Christians from Cyprus and even Cyrene, way down south, they went to Antioch and they started sharing the gospel with the people that were not of the Jewish religion. And here's the picture you should get about that. These two cities that become kind of the largest gatherings of Christian communities, Jerusalem and Antioch, they, um, they're vastly different. God is doing something here. Of course, Jerusalem has this Jewish base. The Hebrew people have all this history with God. But Antioch's like an urban area. It's diverse. It's, there's not a lot of Jewish influence there. Uh, it, the difference would be like Jerusalem's like Dallas, Texas, buckle of the Bible belt, right? And then Antioch is more like New York City. It's very diverse and urban and businessy. And, and through persecution, these Christians scatter to these pockets. In Antioch, this is the first place that Christians get a title of Christians because they don't know what to do with them. So those Christians, and those Christians who are struggling share resources. That's the story of Acts. And during this time, the Apostle Paul, who got converted in Acts 9, by Acts 11 and 13, he's kind of emerging as a significant leader. And so with these two large pockets of Christians in Jerusalem and Antioch, what happens is that Antioch and Jerusalem become sending churches, supporting the missionary efforts of Paul and others. You know what's really cool about that part of the story to me is how different these two Christian communities are. One's very traditional. One had to be like really very different. And yet they both work together for the sake of seeing the gospel spread. It's at Antioch that uh, the church leaders decide for Paul and Barnabas to actually be sent out in an official way. In Acts 13, 2, the Holy Spirit said to them, they felt nudged by God, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So they, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so this is the first official sending out of missionaries, the way we think of it. And it's in that environment, this is the next bullet in your notes, that the Apostle Paul is used by God in leading next-level growth in the church. He's a really significant person in our history. And he takes three missionary journeys. I'm going to put that map up as well. So uh, if, you, if you look at this map, I don't know if you can see it where you are, but the green line represents Paul's first journey that it was set out, sent out with Barnabas. And you can see it's pretty far-reaching. But the red line is his second journey. He goes out the first time, and then he comes back. They reorganize. They come up with a new strategy, and they send him out. And you can see how much further he goes. And then the blue line represents his third journey, which was not as much about planting new churches, but about going back around to those churches that he had established and, and building them up. And what you should see out of this, if you're still with me, 
if you're still geeking out with me, is that um, this is the first time you have this intentional outreach to the world. See, at first the gospel spreading just because people are people of faith. And they're in the middle of crisis and they're scattered around the world and they start talking about this Jesus that is really the reason they got scattered. But, but by this point in Acts, Acts 13, this starts like an intentional focus that took resources and planning and strategy and people committed to do it and people that would support them as they went out. This is the first time that this happens. And the remainder of Acts, from Acts 13 on, is the story of how Paul established these churches, how he went out on these three different journeys. And as he did so, he didn't just like go into a region and, and say, everyone believe the gospel and leave them there. This is what is so unique about Paul. And it might be the, the very reason that God saved him. I don't know. But he provided leadership in these regions and structure and not just establishing churches but providing oversight and he established a culture and a set of values and accountability for their leadership and their structure and that's really important in this day so wake up and listen to me just for a second here you know a bible study is not a church your group or your family you're not a church and this is one of the things that the, the major contributions of Paul. If you have your, you know, you have some little group, some people say, well, I don't need the church. I have this. That's totally unbiblical. Because what Paul did in establishing churches, he didn't just go and say, here's a group of Christians gathered. He provided structure and organization and accountability. And these are all the things that are part of a community of believers being a church. That is part of what we are as Sunridge community church and we take a lot of our structure it looks different today but what we take the basic values from what paul did in these churches and the other thing that so that i want to bring out about paul here that's so remarkable is that paul's an example of how you can never say never about somebody you know you have that person in your life it might be a spouse a child someone you work with someone you like you coach with or you you know you think there's no way they'll ever become a Christian. Don't you think they said that about Paul? Especially as he was persecuting the church? They said there's no way. In fact, what we see is Paul is constantly having to like build confidence in the people because it, they think that it's a scam at first. They're afraid of him. You can never say never. Because sometimes the person that is furthest from God is closest we just don't know. And we don't know that God may save that person for a specific time and purpose. And I think that that's true of Paul because honestly, this is just Brit, this is not Bible. So take it for what it's worth. I don't think any of the other apostles could do what Paul did because he had a, a, an educational background, an organizational background that was unique. And God brought that to the bear in our history and has contributed so much to our day. So the remainder of Acts is the story of Paul establishing these churches, and then the remainder of your New Testament are letters from Paul and others back to those churches, dealing with problems and giving them instruction. That's what you have in your New Testament. You have the Gospels, 
The stories of Jesus, biographies by eyewitnesses in three accounts, and then you have the story of the early church, and then you have individual letters written to those churches. And they, they were different, you know? They had different problems, and that's, that's one of the wonderful things the Spirit of God has given us today through your New Testament. And then lastly, what you see through all of this as you read through Acts is the church grows in spite of resistance and ridicule and persecution. I talked about this a few weeks ago uh, when we were in a little short series called uh, So Worth It about how the gospel spread in spite of the pushback. And you know, an early church father, Tertullian, he, uh, he was a Christian in the second century and, and a leader at that time. And, and he notes how Christians got blamed for everything at this time. I'm going to put a quote up on the screen. If the Tiber floods a city, or if the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence. At once, the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. Not like a football game. But basically, he's saying Christians got blamed for everything. Whatever happened, if it was bad, the Christians must have caused that. Sometimes I can hear echoes of that today. And yet, they were not restrained. They, even, they had to be fearful. They had to be uncomfortable. They had to be put out. And yet you see how, because of the resurrection, they're a movement. A movement that was unstoppable. And it was the resurrection that gave them the footing to stand upon, to say, it's scary, but I can't help myself because I know this is true. The good news motivated those early Christians to be a blessing. You get the connection? Now, like your family history and like mine, um, there are dark places and brilliant light places, right? We all, like for, I, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you guys how many of you had taken one of those tests, you know, from Ancestry.com or 23andMe, and a lot of you raised your hands, and you probably found out like some great things about your family history and some not so great things. Can we just start off by acknowledging that in our history, we have some dark moments. In case you've forgotten, there's the Crusades. There was the Inquisition where we tortured and um, executed people into conversion. There were indulgences where uh, greedy church leaders would absolve people of even like sins they planned to commit if they just gave enough money to the church. In our history, our sex crime cover-ups uh, and their financial scams with uh, still today with the prosperity gospel that is preached that tells you, you know, if you just give money to me or you just buy my thing, um, then you will be rich and God will heal you. We have darkness in our history, but we also have brilliant light. Not just 
not just in the churches that have been established, the literally thousands and thousands of churches that in their place have changed lives. But even bigger than that, even bigger than that, think about universities. You know, the majority of colleges started in the United States 300 years ago were started by Christians. Uh, they took seriously when, John, when Jesus said in John 8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So did you know that Harvard and Yale were started by the Puritans? Did you know that Harvard was named after a Christian minister and Yale was started by a clergyman? And Princeton was started by Presbyterians. Yeah, Presbyterians are Christians too. That's a preacher joke. Don't be offended if you're Presbyterian. Uh, and Princeton's first class was taught by uh, a man, uh, a reverend named Jonathan Dickinson. Think about um, hospitals. Hospitals, you know, were started by Christians. The modern hospital system owes its history and its existence to people of faith. St. Basil of Caesarea founded the first hospital in 369 A.D. By the mid-1500s, there were 37,000 Benedictine monasteries caring for the sick. And you can see in our modern time the evidence of faith uh, influence over hospitals just by their names. When you say St. Vincent's, uh, St. Luke's, Mount Sinai, Mercy, Christians throughout the centuries, have been leaders in medicine. Oftentimes, Christians started hospitals because of some of the pagan kind of like mysticism that, that they found themselves surrounded with that wasn't helping people, and they sought out real solutions to medical problems. And they took that, they took this, this uh, vision from Jesus' statement in Luke 10, 9, when he said, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. So there's universities and hospitals. And then think about the vast number of charities and mercy organizations that were prompted by Christians who took Jesus' words to love your neighbor as yourself seriously. In many cases, these organizations were prompted by a direct implementation of what James wrote, the brother of Jesus, in James 1.27. Pure and lasting religion in the sight of God our Father means that we must care for orphans and widows in their trouble. And the impact of those ministries of mercy over the centuries can be seen. And it's noted by even people that were enemies of Christianity, Julian uh, the apostate Roman emperor wrote this. He said, atheism, that is Christian faith, interesting because you did not follow, believe that Caesar was God. You were an atheist. Atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for, uh, for ours as well. While those who belong to us in vain, look to us in vain for the help we should render them. He was an enemy of the church, and yet he notes, like, look, look at what these Christians are doing, and it bugged them. This is like a chastisement. 
of non-Christians at that time. You know what we see is that throughout the centuries, if you take it all the way back to the moment of resurrection, Christianity began to be a movement. Now, this has been a long talk just to get to one simple point, so I hope you're still with me. But the, the simple point here is, why did they do it? What gave them their drive? What made them knowledgeable or aware that, hey, it's not about us? I'm afraid. There's pushback. I'm busy. That's going to cost me. I have other things going on. And yet they were undeterred. Where, where did that come from? It came from our history that there was a promise given. And that promise was that I will bless you. And we understand that now today as a blessing through the gospel. They stood on that promise, and part of that promise was that I will not only bless you, but you will be a blessing. And then they saw that promise revealed a little more in the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, I am the fulfillment. And when he was put to death and resurrected, that was a game changer. So that promise, fulfilled in a person, became a movement. And that movement has been unstoppable because over the centuries, people have stood on the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in his fulfillment of the promise, he clarified what that looks like. What, what does it look like on a human being? And we have the example of Jesus, of what it means to be a blessing to the nations. And that history falls right on us in this time. Why are we here? Why is Sunridge here? What is our calling? I can't wait to tell you what that's about next week, so you have to come back. But I can tell you that you can see where it's headed, right? And our goal is to keep that same history, that ancestry, the legacy that has been given to us a history of us next week turns into this is us. And that's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to close with this. Galatians 3.29, Paul said, and now, take this, let's read it as if it's written to us, even though it was written to the Galatian believers. And now that you, Sunridge, belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And now all the promises God gave to him belong to you. And so next Sunday, with the last three weeks in our history as our guide, we're going to talk about what that is. Let's pray.